Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Since its launch in 2013, the Belton Road Initiative has been playing a huge role in facilitating global trade, investment, and financial integration. Spanning more than 150 countries, it is the first infrastructure initiative in history that is joined by about 70% of the world's population, covering more than half of the global GDP. Egypt, being one of the first countries to join the BRI, witnessed remarkable progress made in the past decade. What changes had the BRI brought to Egypt, the Arab states, and the Middle East, and the world? How could the initiative better serve the development rights of more countries and reach its ultimate goal of building a global community of a shared future? To discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by Nabil Fami, former foreign minister of Egypt. He's also a visiting senior fellow at the Institute for Global Cooperation and Understanding of Peking University. Welcome to Dialogue, Minister Fami. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it's been ten years since the start of the Belt and Road Initiative.、Uh, we know that you know more than 150 countries have signed up to the initiative, and Egypt, where you are from. Uh, is one of the signatory countries to the initiative.、Uh, so I want to have your assessment of the past、uh, development, you know, during the ten years、uh, period of time of、uh, the initiative. Well, I, I would argue it's a considerable success.、Uh, it was a major project involving, as you mentioned, over 150 countries,、uh, and it focuses on developmental issues. Uh, consequently, it takes time, but the mere fact that it has gotten so many countries、uh, on board, and、uh, where one has seen a, a significant growth rate in the majority of these countries,、uh, besides、uh, the growth of bilateral trade and development between China and many of these countries, I look at it as a tremendous success. There's been, it's been so successful. It has generated. A level of competition among,、uh, if you want,、uh, the Western world in particular, but also other parts of the world. So I'm all on board for the project.、Uh, at the same time, each one of us has to look at the details of the project、uh, from their own perspective, with the、uh, objective of having a win-win situation. Yeah, a win-win situation. I think that's、uh, the the goal or the principle、uh, the initiative follows.、Uh, and of course, you know, this、uh, Belt and Road Initiative also aligns with、uh, Egypt's、uh, own strategic development、uh, plan, which is called Egypt's、uh, Vision 2030. Tell us more on that. You know, how does、uh, or how do these two initiatives align with each other? Sure.、Uh, first of all, for Different reasons. Egypt was、uh, a little bit slow in developing its infrastructural capacity over the last three or four decades, and we were falling behind. Even though we had one of the uh, strongest and largest uh, infrastructural uh, uh, legs, which was the Suez Canal. Uh, so tr- the uh, uh, program 2030. Was besides a program meant to increase development, it was also a program that gave strong priority to、uh, building infrastructural capacity.、Uh, 
the reason for that being we look at Egypt as being strategically located and consequently a very good position to be a hub for commodity training, a hub for grain training, a hub for energy cooperation. And all of that fought, fell and was very consistent with uh, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, in trying to uh, upscale the capacity of the Suez Canal, upscale the industrial zones around it, including a cooperation zone with China. All of this came very consistent with Belt and Road and 2030 on the Egyptian side. Mm -hmm. uh, speak of the zone, uh, Minister, you know, there's a TADA cooperation zone in Egypt, uh, Swiss, uh, which has been seen as a model of cooperation between China and Egypt under the BRI. Uh, so we have seen that, you know, more than 145 countries have uh, enterprises have invested in this uh, zone uh, with the creation, of course, thousands or uh, tens of thousands of opportunities for employment. Um, even, you know, what is impressive, you know, even during the three years of COVID-19, 90% of the businesses in the zone, they have achieved, uh, you know, profits. Tell us, how is the zone like? How does it work? You know, how, I mean, you know, what does it mean? How does it fit in the... Uh, economic development of Egypt? Well, let me tell you even a personal story. When I was minister in 2013-14, uh, one of the complaints that I received from the Chinese uh, at the time was that we were, that Egypt was a bit slow in completing the infrastructure for that zone and that Chinese companies were already starting their investment. We immediately started to correct that mistake, to uh, quickly finish the infrastructure. And uh, I must say, the Chinese enthusiasm to join the zone only increased day after day. It's a reflection of a, uh, an area built on mutual benefit. It's not meant to profit one side versus the other. It is meant to be mutually beneficial, and it's meant uh, to be a strategic uh, uh, commitment rather than a tactical one. It's not a trade, it's an investment. Uh, we are very, very happy to see the diversification of Chinese companies uh, in, um, in the zone, and they cover a lot of different disciplines from infrastructure to uh, uh, industrial products, uh, IT, uh, they're, all, they're all there. We have created a special facility to help the companies there re resolve and overcome any pr procedural steps, to help them uh, really undertake an investment in the market, in the Egyptian market, which is considerable of size uh, in comparison to other Middle Eastern markets. But it's also a zone that is a platform for cooperation between China and Egypt, but also between China and a number of East European, sorry, East East African countries, as well as, frankly, even exports into uh, Europe because of our economic zones with these areas. It's a model that we're trying to emulate with other countries now. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, well, Minister, do you mind in, uh, tell us more about uh, the advantages or the strength um, you know, of investing in Egypt? Uh, we see, as you said, the enthusiasm from the Chinese business community to invest in your country, not only for the you know, sizable market in Egypt itself, but also uh, beyond Egypt, right? Sure. I mean, the, the economic strength is that you have both a good domestic market for your products, but also a good export market for the products. Uh, the uh, particular attractiveness of the zone is that it's on the Suez Canal area, therefore easy access in, easy access out for uh, um, uh, um, production elements that are required or for the ultimate product as it's finished. And I would add, uh, thirdly, uh, the regulations manage uh, organizing the zone are meant to have been considerably simplified with one-stop one shopping uh, so that companies can go to a very limited number of, uh, of venues to res resolve any of their requirements. So it's not only uh, that there are tax incentives, and there are, for companies building in these zones, but it's also that we are tr really making this a business-to-business -business area and trying to facilitate uh, cooperation. And I think we've succeeded just looking at the number of Chinese companies that have come in. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Minister, you know, some would say the biggest or one of the biggest advantages of Egypt uh, is its trade agreements with um, other Af uh, African states, um, basically about uh, 26 African countries, uh, you know, with the free trade agreements. So that means, you know, um, there's no trade barriers uh, or customers in terms of the uh, transfer of goods and services. So how is your country making good use of that advantage? That's, that's definitely one of the advantages. And I, I mentioned in, in my previous answer, uh, the East Africa agreement with COMESA uh, is one of the things that you're mentioning. I would even add to that, the Egyptian agreement with Europe allows us to export to Europe products that are produced in Egypt uh, over and above a certain percentage. So there are, uh, a, and there is also uh, ongoing progress towards doing the same with uh, uh, Arab countries. Egypt has uh, a well-trained labor force that is relatively efficient, that is efficient and relatively inexpensive. Uh, its location reduces the uh, cost of transport very significantly uh, from the zone uh, to, to Africa, Asia, and West Asia, and to Europe. And its location on the Suez Canal makes it also attractive logistically. Uh, so this is really a, a, uh, a, a model that we like to show and uh, are proud of when we talk to other areas, to other countries, and try to emulate similar projects. And I want to emphasize that this has been, we are very happy to see the progress in job creation in particular be that jobs on the ground, in the zone, uh, but also uh, the spin-off industries that uh, build on these kinds of zones. 
Yeah, indeed. Uh, uh, there is a, a number saying that the Chinese investments uh, have created uh, roughly 24,000 job opportunities uh, in the country. Uh, and uh, staying on the cooperation between China and Egypt, Minister. I, know, can, I can tell you they are very significant. The number of jobs are significant and uh, they are witnessable. Uh, let me also say that China now is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Egypt's largest investment partner because of projects like TIDA and because of the direction in which uh, we're all going. So this is a success story on both sides. Uh, yes, uh, investment and uh, also uh, cooperation in different sectors. Uh, uh, Minister, we know that China is a leading uh, member in terms of uh, the renewable energies, uh, technologies, as well as uh, equipment manufacturing, uh, such as the solar power equipment. Uh, and uh, you know, you, if you look at the EVs also, uh, there's a strong competition, very competitive for the Chinese EVs too. Uh, what do you see as a prospect of cooperation in this sector between China and Egypt? I actually see this as being one of the uh, most progressive and one of the sectors with most potential. We are trying to very quickly move more and more towards clean energy. Uh, and therefore, we're in consultations with China on EVs, for one example. We're, we're already doing projects with China on solar panels and, so, and solar farms. As you know, Egypt has uh, the luxury of being sunny most of the part of, of yes. the, most of the time of the year. And we also have wind farms. Uh, so uh, we will expand cooperation in this area in particular uh, because, it, again, it serves interests on both sides. Uh, yes, uh, you know, something beyond uh, the specific cooperation, you know, there's, there are reports that uh, the um, Egyptian side is uh, seriously considering the use of the local currencies of its trade partners, including that of the Chinese currency we call yuan, and of course, Egyptian pound, uh, to reduce the reliance or demand for the U.S. dollars. Uh, what do you make of that? Well... Let me respond by reminding people, China is about 5,000 years old, Egypt is about 7,000 years old. Trade in the past was bartering. It was products for products. Uh, it wasn't actually done through currencies. Currencies are, are a contemporary development, and over time, the U.S. dollar became the currency for most trade operations. So going back to barter agreements is nothing really new. It's, it's a normal. Uh, and trying to diversify the currencies in which a trade occurs also makes sense. I say this uh, while recognizing that the dollar will continue for a considerable amount of time to be quite significant. But if I am trading products with China and China with Egypt, why is it that we would have to factor in our calculations a third currency? It doesn't make sense. Uh, the real health of our trade uh, is when we can develop 
a good trade balance between the two countries, irrespective of the currency per se. But yes, to answer your question, as Egypt can diversify uh, the currencies in which it trades with different countries, it reduces, the, it reduces a little bit the pressure uh, domestically here to find uh, dollars for import reasons for other products. So I'm all for this. I'm not surprised by what's happened between the two countries, but I'm also realistic that we will continue to trade in dollars with countries uh, that do that. But trading in multi-currencies is helpful because it makes us all less dependent on one factor. Mm -hmm. Minister, do you see that as a trend, you know, more or less, especially for developing countries? You know, there are different considerations. Some countries would say they want to evade any potential or possible U.S. sanctions, you know, because of their reliance on U.S. dollars and the financial markets. Others would say, you know, by trading or clearing the trade directly with the local currencies, you reduce the cost of uh, changing into U.S. dollars uh, with your own currency. Uh, and of course, they say uh, diverse, with the interest rates increase in the U.S., for example, it also creates extra burden for developing countries to pay their foreign debt. So they say, you know, maybe uh, diversification is the choice. As a former foreign minister, uh, I'm known to have always emphasized the importance of diversification in whatever domain we're talking about, well beyond the currency issue. That's, so, yes, I'm all for diversification. Secondly, uh, I don't want to uh, make this issue uh, simply to be uh, an issue to relieve countries from U.S. sanctions. I don't support U unilateral sanctions by any standard or any account anyway. But uh, I support diversification because it makes economic sense, because it, it, it makes the trade more inexpensive, and it makes it, uh, if you want, uh, less costly. Uh, but I also want to argue that uh, the health of your economy is on how efficient the economy is, not necessarily uh, on how many currencies you use or not. So uh, my long answer to you is I'm all for diversity. I'm all for uh, using multi-currencies, but I'm not going to argue that the solution to all of our problems is changing uh, the dollar into other currencies. That's only part of the issue. Yeah, part of the issue. Uh, Minister, uh, let's um, you know, look at the, a bit uh, uh, big picture uh, between China and the uh, Middle East region, let's say, or Arab world. Uh, say China has signed the BRI cooperation documents with 21 Arab countries and the Arab League. China is now the largest trading partner of the Arab states, uh, with last year's trade volume almost doubling that in 2012 uh, to 431 billion U.S. dollars in 2022. Basically, you know, in 10 years' time, uh, the trade volume grew two times that of the pre previous volume. What do you make of that? You know, how do you see this rapid development of trade between China and Arab states? First of all, I think it's completely common sense. Secondly, let me add that because it's common sense because it serves the interests of both sides. 
Let me add that I was asked recently on an interview with a Western journal if I thought that China was coming to the Middle East. And my answer was no, it's already there. Uh, and I also argue that one of the reasons why uh, the curve, as you mentioned, is moving upwards at a rapid pace because the parties, be they China or the Arab world, understand and respect each other. Your president visited an Arab summit in Riyadh last year, I believe. And at, the, at, the, at that summit, or, or at the end of it, there were agreements worth about $30 billion that commitments were made on. But the number didn't really affect me that much. It was the commonality of the language, shared projects, mutual respect, uh, looking for win-win situations. That's really what is pushing this curve. Now, uh, is the attractiveness in relation to Chinese energy interest, partially, is also a function of uh, uh, China looking for markets for products. But I would argue from the Arab side, China is extremely attractive as an investment partner. It's an attractive as a trade partner, whether it is to get high quality goods at reasonable prices uh, or uh, to develop um, industries um, that are with joint mutual commitment. So I see this as a logical uh, curve that will go higher and higher because it's done on a strategic basis with a win-win mentality rather than on, if you want, a transactional basis where uh, most of the profit goes to one end. Mm -hmm. uh, Minister, you were asked by Western Journal, you know, uh, is China coming to the Middle East? Uh, does that mean, you know, there's a concern from the West that China's increased presence in the uh, region? There's, no, there's not a concern, there's a paranoia. Every Where is question, that from? Yeah. Uh, the, the West likes to talk about free markets, but they don't like competition. Uh, the West likes to talk about uh, investment and trade, uh, likes to talk about the Middle East needing to, do, to solve its own problems. But when we reach out and uh, find, look for solutions elsewhere, they become hypersensitive because China is an efficient, strong force to be reckoned with. And it is, uh, depending on how you want to calculate it, either the first or the second largest economy in the world. So uh, that raises concerns in the West. Uh, my, my response to my Western colleagues has been repeatedly that I'm not pro-West, nor am I pro-East or pro-China. I'm pro-Egypt. And therefore, I will do what serves Egypt's interest. And Egypt's interest is in diversification. And it's in diversification with partners that mutually respect each other and with, that look for a win-win situation.
And we have found that in the Chinese partners, in the Chinese companies, it hasn't always been easy. But overwhelmingly, the experience has been quite positive. Mm -hmm. Uh, speak of the, the concern, you know, with the rise of China or the rise of uh, the rest using their language. Uh, we do see, uh, for example, the expansion of BRICS countries uh, recently. And Egypt uh, was among one of the six new members to the BRICS group. Tell us, Minister, what does it mean, the new membership to Egypt? Well, first of all, uh, Egypt traditionally has been a leader in trying to help evolve the world order. So I look at BRICS as a constructive platform to help develop the world order, among other platforms, because we no longer live in the post-World War II era and the divisions between Warsaw Pact and, and NATO and East and West in that context. Secondly, I actually believe that uh, BRICS opens the door for us for more efficient economic cooperation with these members as well as with other members. And uh, we are in a rapid development era for Egypt where look, we have a increasing popula population, we have growth demands that require us to uh, spend a lot of money and it also requires us to be to deal with our economy efficiently. Uh, so BRICS provides uh, us an, an, another opportunity to work with friendly countries uh, in that respect. Mm -hmm. uh, with the rise of uh, the major developing countries, uh, I would say represented probably by the BRICS countries, you know, previously uh, China, Egypt, uh, China, India, uh, uh, Russia, South Africa, of course, Brazil, and now we have uh, Egypt, Argentina, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. Uh, so how do you see the impact or the potential impact of a BRICS grouping on this uh, forming of maybe a new global structure? The tendency to create new global structures actually was started by the major powers post-World War II. As the UN grew, they felt that it was much more difficult to manage. Therefore, let's establish the G20, the G7, and you name it. And there were all these different kinds of structures, which originally were named as economic structures, but also went on to have a geopolitical structure as well. Uh, so that's something that was started mostly by the developed world. Uh, to create structures like BRICS, the idea was to help and add uh, an economic voice of cooperation. With that, we come to the end of today's show. Many thanks to our guest, Minister Nabil Fami. You can also find us on the CGT app on YouTube. I'm Xu Qinduo. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. <laughs>